You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now turn to our scripture readings this morning. In connection with our text, which is Psalm 47, we have two readings. First of all, from Numbers 33, verse 50, and we'll read up to chapter 34, verse 15. On the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and their cast idols and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Distribute the land by lot according to your clans. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. And to a smaller group, a smaller one. Whatever falls to them by lot will be theirs. Distribute it according to your ancestral tribes. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live. And then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites and say to them, When you enter Canaan, the land that will be allotted to you as an inheritance will have these boundaries. Your southern side will include some of the desert of Zin along the border of Edom. On the east, your southern boundary will start from the end of the Salt Sea, cross south of Scorpion Pass, Continue on to Zin and go south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it will go to Hazar Adar and over to Asmon, where it will turn, join the Wadi of Egypt, and end at the sea. Your western boundary will be the coast of the Great Sea. This will be your boundary on the west. For your northern boundary, run a line from the Great Sea to Mount Hor, and from Mount Hor to Libo Hamad. Then the boundary will go to Zedad, continue to Ziphron, and end at Hazar Enan. This will be your boundary on the north. For your eastern boundary, run a line from Hazar Enan to Shepham. The boundary will go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of Ain, and continue along the slopes east of the Sea of Kinneret. Then the boundary will go down along the Jordan and end at the Salt Sea. This will be your land with its boundaries on every side. Moses commanded the Israelites, Assign this land by lot as an inheritance. The Lord has ordered that it be given to the nine and a half tribes because the families of the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance. These two and a half tribes have received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan of Jericho toward the sunrise. Let's also turn to Second Samuel chapter 8. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Metahamah from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. Moreover, David fought Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 
7,000 charioteers and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Barotai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When two, king of Hamat, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with two. Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahihud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiatar, were priests. Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Keratites and Pelatites. And David's sons were royal advisors. Let's now turn to read our text, Psalm 47. For the director of music of the sons of Korah, a psalm. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. How awesome is the Lord Most High, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the shouting of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on His holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. The kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Beloved congregation of Christ Jesus our Lord, this morning we're continuing our series of sermons on the book of Psalms. One of my goals through this series is to highlight the way that the Psalms are real life. We live in a messy, complicated world. Even or perhaps especially as believers, we, we face struggles and we face situations that make us constantly groan, make us long for the return of the Lord. We get tired. We get worn down. Well, many of the Psalms grow out of the same ground. 
faced with the, the messiness of life, we can, we can tie into these psalms very easily and, and we can make them our own songs and make them our own prayers to the Lord. Some of the psalms, they, they lend themselves to this more naturally. Think of uh, a psalm like the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. The title tells us that it was written by David, but apart from that, we don't have any historical context to go with it. We don't know what might have led David to, to write this psalm. The Holy Spirit meant for it to be this way. People in all times, people in all cultures, they can, they can take such a psalm and they can easily make it their own. And they can receive a lot of comfort from it. But then there are other psalms that come with a more concrete historical context. We can appreciate these psalms on one level because they, they bring us real life situations. But sometimes we can't really hook into them because our real life situations seem to be so different. It's a, we're, we're living in different worlds. You know, think of Psalm 59, a psalm written by, by David when Saul had again set out to kill him. When was the last time you were on somebody's hit list? Well, Psalm 47 is in that category of psalms that gives us a concrete historical context. Now, it may not seem like that at first glance. Take a closer look. The title tells us that it was composed by the sons of Korah, the Korahites. We know from 1 Chronicles 6 and other passages that the sons of Korah were especially active during the reign of David. We know that they were around in, in later times as well. But the, the rest of the psalm also seems to point to the time of David. For instance, the psalm speaks of the fact that the nations have been subdued. The peoples were under the feet of the people of God. There were incredible military victories happening. Oh, and that makes you think of what we read from 2 Samuel 8. That recurring refrain throughout that chapter. Did, did you notice that? The, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Nobody could stand in David's way. It was during the time of David that the promised borders of the land of Israel, those promises that were made in Numbers 34, those promises, they finally came into being. The promised land was finally there. The promised land was now entirely in Israel's possession. Now this historical context is helpful as we try to understand the psalm. But it also adds a challenge. How does a psalm celebrating the conquest of Canaan some 3,000 years ago, how does that still speak to us in a meaningful way today? How does the conquest of Canaan relate to the struggles that you may be having in your family? How does it tie into your daily struggles with sin? Let's try and answer those questions this morning. We'll do it by taking as our theme the, the central command of Psalm 47. Sing exuberant praises to the King. And we'll look at this command's recipients, its reasons, and then also its realization. Well, first of all, the recipients. Do you remember a few years back, wasn't that long ago, when the United States went into Iraq? The American government 
The American military machine maintained that the troops would be welcomed as liberators. There would be parties in the street. People would be singing, handing out flowers to the soldiers and, and whatever else. Everyone would rejoice that, that Uncle Sam had finally come to save the Iraqi people from Saddam Hussein. Well, it didn't quite turn out that way. Sure, there, there was some rejoicing. Some people were, were happy to be rid of Saddam. But generally, the Americans didn't get the welcome that they were expecting. And the consequences are still there to this present day. Now, I want you to imagine if things had happened differently. Imagine, hypothetically, if President Bush had commanded his troops to kill all the Iraqis, whether or not they were active combatants, didn't matter. Whether they were men, women, or children, didn't matter. When the American troops go into Iraq, they have to kill them all. Now imagine further if the American troops didn't have the stomach to go through with that kind of a slaughter. So instead of killing them all, say, the, the troops decided to only kill maybe every two out of every three. And the rest would be made servants or slaves for the American people. Now given that hypothetical, fictional scenario, how do you think the Iraqi people who, who, who survived, how do you think they would regard the American troops? How would they look at the American president? Now if there's an insurgency and, and a resistance movement right now, imagine the negative feelings of things that taken place in, in that way that I just described. Now thinking about those things, helps us to understand who Psalm 47 is addressed to. Like I mentioned a moment ago, we have to see this psalm against the concrete historical background of the conquest of Canaan by David. Now, war and conquest are never pretty. And holy war, by God's rules, was especially ugly. According to God's word, there was to be no mercy for any of the native inhabitants in the land. Men, women, and children were all to be killed. If they were not, there would be dire consequences for the people of Israel. They would leave themselves open to being ensnared by idolatry and other forms of disobedience. But when it came down to the crunch, however, that the people of Israel could never bring themselves consistently to obey God's command. Even David... As we saw in 2 Samuel 8, David showed restraint in the way he dealt with the peoples that he conquered. Now you can be sure that these conquered peoples would not have regarded their conquest as being a, a positive thing. Their husbands and fathers had been slaughtered. Mothers and children had been struck down by swords and spears. Blood stained the ground. Families had been decimated. Nothing but slavery was left for those who had survived. Now, I wanted to develop that point because traditional Christian interpretation has seen the first verse of the psalm as being addressed to those conquered peoples. Almost all commentators and study Bibles will tell you that the psalm is coming from Israel and it's being addressed to the nations commanding them to rejoice and to praise God. Some even say that this is a, a kind of a missionary psalm. 
our translations like the NIV and, and others and, and also the rhymed version in our book of praise, they also make us think of it this way. However, it's interesting that Jewish commentators have taken a different approach. Jewish translations and commentaries in Psalm 47 see it as being addressed to the people of God. In Jewish translations, the first verse reads, Clap your hands, you people! Shout to God with cries of joy! And given the Hebrew and the grammar there, this is a completely legitimate translation. In fact, I think it is the best way to translate and understand this verse. Do you see the problem? If we understand the first verse as being addressed to the conquered peoples, then there's this big disconnect between their situation and what's being commanded of them. They've been decimated. They've been humiliated and enslaved. And now they're expected to rise up and start clapping their hands for joy? They're expected to sing to God with delight? These are exuberant and and heartfelt things to do. These kinds of actions don't come from people who are, are forced to do them by their conquerors. I don't know if you've ever watched Jewish people celebrating. And maybe this doesn't happen with all Jewish people, but I've seen it in several places. And Jewish people celebrate, and they get going with the, the hand clapping and the, and the singing for joy. It's really quite a sight. People don't do that sort of thing when they've just had their family slaughtered. They don't praise the God who gave the execution orders. However, the exuberance and the joy commanded in this psalm would be natural for the people of Israel. After many years of struggle, many ups and downs, they had finally received the full measure of their inheritance. They had witnessed God's faithfulness, His power, They're the ones that you could expect to get worked up into a joyful Jewish frenzy. God had brought them peace and prosperity in the promised land. Verses 3 and 4 witness to, to God's work for them. He put the nations under them. The peoples of Canaan and the surrounding areas, they were, they were like a man lying on the ground and Israel was the victor with his foot on his head. Through all of this, God had given what He had promised to Israel. Land. And land meant inheritance. Something to pass on to your children and your grandchildren and the coming generations. It was something that Jacob or Israel could value very highly. And all of this put God's love for His people into sharp focus. And so this psalm is entirely addressed to God's people. We too are God's people. As we read and work with this psalm today, we have to remember our roots. There is one people of God, remember, running through the ages. The victory that the Israelites experienced in the time of David. That was our victory. The peace they received. That was our peace. The God they celebrated with clapping of hands and singing for joy. He is our God. 
Now let's turn and look at the reasons for the command to exuberantly praise this God. The command comes with two reasons. The first is directly connected with what we were just looking at. It's the fact that God is a king who conquers. God is a king who is victorious. Verse 2 tells us that the Lord Most High, and that's, in case you're interested, Yahweh Elion in Hebrew, the Lord Most High is awesome. Literally, the original says that He is to be feared. This God is mighty and powerful. You don't deal with Him casually or, or flippantly. That's surely a truth that we need to remember today as well. God's awesomeness is accentuated in the next line too when we read that He is the King, the great King over all the earth. There are kings and then there is the King. Verse 3 tells us in very concrete terms what, what makes this King so great. It's His power to subdue nations and to, to have victory. It's His power to fulfill the promises He, he made to the patriarchs of, upon whom He had set His love. And verse 5 emphasizes that God has the victory. It says, God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. The image here is of a conquering king climbing the steps to address his people. And the people are rejoicing. The people are shouting for joy and the trumpets are sounding. So imagine it. The air is electric with enthusiasm and energy. The king has come back from the battle and with his power he won the day. The connection is made in Psalm 47 between God's kingly power and his willingness, his eagerness even, to use that power for the good of his people. God's power is never this kind of naked, abstract entity. God's power is almost always exercised in relationship and in our relationship with Him, our covenant relationship, for the sake of Christ His Son, God uses His power to make everything work for good in our lives. We know that, don't we? But we often need to be reminded. In the messiness of life, it's easy to forget that circumstances and, and situations, they're not out of control. God is in the driver's seat. Now sometimes the road is rough. Sometimes your, your bones even get jarred. Sometimes there's some tight corners. But He's driving us to a destination where the sun shines and the skies are blue. He knows what He's doing. And when we reflect on that, that our King has power, and He has power, He uses His power for us, that ought to lead our thoughts upward. Our thoughts, too, in exuberant praise. So the first reason is that God is a king of power and love. The second reason is that God is king over all the earth. We find this thought expressed in verse 2 and then later again in, in verses 7, 8, and 9. Earthly kings, whether David or, or anybody else, they simply don't compare to God. Earthly kings, they, they rule over a a small patch of real estate. But God, the King, rules over the entire world. Indeed, over the whole universe. 
And when we read these words, we have to forget about our contemporary ideas of royalty. Canada, for instance, is a constitutional monarchy. The Queen's power is more symbolic than real. She doesn't actively govern our country. She has no real hand in the the affairs of our provinces or in the affairs of our cities and towns. When all is said and done, the Queen is actually quite limited in what she can do and, and what she can say for those she reigns. And this is where God is completely different. The kingdom of God is not a constitutional monarchy. When God reigns, He is actively governing. His rule is real. He makes decrees and they are executed. He gives moral commands and He expects them to be obeyed. And there are consequences when they are not, both presently and eternally. God is the real king with a real reign. And the point of Psalm 47 is that His reign extends wherever the sun may shine. His kingdom stretches from shore to shore, not just in one country, but in every corner of creation. God is the universal king. Why should we rejoice over that fact? Why should such a fact compel us to sing praises to God as as we're told in verse 6? Well, there are many reasons that we could think of. I'll just mention a couple. First off, He's revealed Himself to be a good King. Morally good. He reigns everywhere in righteousness and holiness. So we can rejoice in the fact that the, the decrees of our King will always be consistent with His character. Sometimes we're tempted to second-guess God. Does He really know what He's doing in this or that situation? But God, brothers and sisters, God is not capricious. His actions are always consistent with His character. And His character is morally good. He is the epitome of holiness and righteousness. So indeed... Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. And second, we can praise Him because He is the King who saves. He has a special relationship with some of His subjects. Those who see themselves as His subjects. Those who have submitted to His reign in in faith and obedience. With these subjects, he's, He's made a promise to save them from whatever might separate them from Him. In this psalm, we see that with the fact that God gave victory over the land of Canaan, over the promised land. The Canaanites, the other nations, they were a threat to the relationship between God and His people. God took that threat away through David. And in this way, He brought a measure of salvation. And for us as as New Testament believers, We can see this most clearly in the work of Christ. Christ came as the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises to remove whatever might separate His people from Him. Our people. Remember, they were our people. In the time of David, they had plenty of reason to praise our King. But we, living in the light of Christ's coming, we have even more reasons 
Well, let's look at that aspect more closely in our, in our last point, the realization of this command. When we talk about that, the realization, there are at least a, a couple of levels in view here. The first level is, is when this psalm was first written and, and sung. Imagine the first time that this psalm was unveiled and, and the people would have sung it. Incredible victory celebration. The people would have been clapping their hands for joy and singing with great gusto. As time went on, the generation that saw the total conquest of the land, they, they would have passed away. The awareness of the deep meaning of the conquest would, would still have been there for a few generations. But as time went on, the historical consciousness would be lost. And this psalm, though it would still speak, it would lose some of its pointedness. Well, today, Jewish people still sing this psalm. They sing it especially at Rosh Hashanah, which is the, the Jewish New Year. And that's because Rosh Hashanah is considered to be the anniversary of the creation of the world. And in Jewish thinking, this is when God began to rule as king. Well, that being what it may, there is another level at which we consider the realization of this command and that's what took place about a thousand years after it was written. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all the Old Testament references to God being our King. Just think into the New Testament. Think of His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Think of the way that Paul takes the words of David in Psalm 68 and he applies them to the ascended Christ. In Ephesians 4, verse 8. Just like Psalm 47, Psalm 68 gives us a picture of God as the victorious King who has ascended on high. His fist is raised in triumph. His voice lets out a cry of victory. And the New Testament leads us to see Christ in this picture. Christ is the one who is the victorious divine King. When He ascended into heaven, His victory over sin, death, and Satan, it was laid open, made clear. There is still something more to it. Because after all, sin, death, Satan, they're still active. Active realities also in our lives. The Scriptures are clear that even though the war has been won, Battles are still being fought. And they will be fought until the final consummation of all things. When the Lord Jesus returns, and when He returns, He will plant His foot on Satan's bloody head for one final death blow. And in this way, there's an already but not yet aspect to this psalm in its realization. Sure, God conquered the promised land through David. But what happened as history moved on? The conquest did not remain an accomplished fact. Eventually, the Babylonian exile took place. Then later, the, the Greeks conquered Palestine. Later, the Romans conquered Palestine. And on and on it went through history. There were obviously deeper realities being pointed to in this psalm. And so yes, Christ came to fulfill the promises about rest in the, the true country of God. But there remains a rest to come. The ultimate 
is still coming. The time is coming when all the nobles of the nations will assemble before the King of kings and and Lord of lords. They will acknowledge His sovereign rule just like we do. But this lays in the future. Now when we take these truths and we try to work with them in our lives, our struggles, our day-to-day messiness, we have to remember our position with respect to our King. As Spirit-filled Christians, we we share in His anointing. That means that, that His victory over sin, death, and Satan, it's ours. But then we're also reminded about what a Christian life looks like. We know that there is an already, but not yet, in our lives, in our personal struggles whether that's in our family or in our personal life or maybe in in other contexts, we still live in a time where sin is around. We still live in a time where, just looking at ourselves, we, we have an old nature and a new nature. We live in a world where we live with others in our church and, and in our families who also have that battle raging for their hearts and lives. We struggle. And it's very easy to become discouraged. Very easy to, 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 to wonder whether there's ever going to be an end to this, whether we're ever going to make any progress. In the midst of this, this psalm gives us an outlook that we desperately need. What do we need? We need context. We need the big picture. And you know what the big picture is? It's Christ's victory. It reminds us that there is a heavenly rest. There is an inheritance waiting for us. There is victory because there is a victorious God. The victory is here in principle. The already. And God's promise is that someday it will be realized in all its fullness. But not yet. Today we fight. And we look for the rest to come. We fight against remaining sin in our lives with a positive attitude because we know what the outcome will be. We've got the guarantee here in Psalm 47, our text this morning. And knowing the outcome gives us the motivation to continue, to keep on going in our walk with the Lord every day. We can do that joyfully. Singing praises to our victorious God. Celebrating who He is for us. Now as we sing Psalm 47, which we're going to do in just a minute here, we do that with our eyes on Jesus, our victorious King. As we sing about clapping hands and shouting aloud to God, we can remember the perfections of Christ, our King. As we sing about His triumph and victory, we think about what He what He has already accomplished in us and what He will yet do. We can truly look forward to the end of time when we'll hear these words prophesied in Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! 
The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.